Hi, welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph, and we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're going to be talking with Bruce Feiler, author of Life is in the Transitions. And before we get to that, we're going to talk about how hard it is to pull off this particular session of recording. Well, it started with me having no place to be, and Stephanie... Is getting a new roof. A roof, and they hammer. It's fascinating, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. So um, this is like take 20 for us. Anyway, so Bruce Feiler wrote this book, and it focuses on getting over difficult times in life. And the prompt for his book, which he will talk about also, is that he himself was facing personal bankruptcy, cancer, and his father had tried to take his own life several times. That led Bruce to go on this journey of trying to figure out how do other people recover from these things. And in his journey of talking to many people, he came up with the phrase, life quakes. They all hit us. We never called them that, but it's a great word. So we decided we'll share our own and then move on to Bruce. So mine is, I don't even know what year it was. Let's think. I think it's probably almost 15 years ago that I got out of the car, there was black ice, and I had a really bad fracture of my ankle. And while people have these things all the time, and if you're that kind of person, you have tremendous sympathy for it, but it's nothing like living it. It's the funniest thing in life, how you, when you experience it for yourself, you're like, oh, that's how it is? I I did not give enough compassion to that person because I was like, oh, that sucks. You know, I might've said it more deeply, but it's like, that sucks. And then I move on with my life and they're stuck there. So I had a good six months in my house and there were so many aspects of it that were shocking to me. The world went on without me. My family worked without me. It was pretty existential, kind of like it is right now with COVID, this feeling of being completely removed from the things that you thought you were essential to. And I also remember re-entry was pretty hard because when you pull out from something, I guess there's huge parallels to that and today because I also worry about how you re-enter after this whole time is over. It's, that seems a little scary to me. But it was a, it was like a real, I don't know if I'd call it a, any silver linings to it because it was tremendous pain and challenges to get healed and out of pain and working well. But there were things to come out of it that were kind of those moments where you say, how do I make my time meaningful here? What's important to me? And look at what my kids can do without me. That's amazing. So I keep thinking about, I said this to a friend earlier today where I keep reading about, you know, the COVID effect and how much depression and anxiety there is. And I'm like, oh, I'm acting totally normal. But I was recounting a story to my husband last night. And he looked at, when I was repeating something to him and he looked at me and he went, you said that? And I was like, I did. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the COVID effect. Because I would not have said that before. Like, it was funny. Like, it's like living on this edge, I feel like. And so it's kind of like, so you and I have had this conversation countless times over the years where something's going on and you'll say to me, you know what? Why don't you sleep on it? I think you might feel different about that on Monday. Or like, you know, you're really close to it. Like, give yourself some time. I'm like, no, I'm not stressed. I'm not, you know? And then it's like a day or two later, I'm like, oh yeah, it does look really different. (laughs) But it's so hard to recognize when you're in it. I'm going to say that totally makes me think of being younger when I had PMS. (laughs) I would be like, this is so not about that. (laughs) 
don't you blame it on that. This has nothing to do with that. And then afterwards, it's like, oh, it might have been been 100% because of that. (laughs) But it is really hard. I mean, I realized this last night, like, and again, something we've talked about countless times where I look at life in general and always think like, okay, is that just an exaggerated version? Like, so, you know, you're going through a hard time and, or I look at someone who's in a pregnancy and I always think, oh, they're kind of themselves. They're just an exaggerated version of themselves. And it's easier when you're looking at someone else, but when it's looking back at myself and I think, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. And then I was laying in bed last night. Yeah. And then I also sent my sister a text at 4am apparently because I sent her, this is so funny. I sent her something about, she was asking me about like sleep aids and I sent her like this sleep aid. It was like a, um, some kind of vitamin, some kind of gummy vitamin, not a CBD thing, like something maybe with like melatonin or whatever. She's like, maybe you should consider it. You know, you sent that to me at (laughs) 4am. That's a very funny thing. Yeah. But it's really hard, at least for me, like to look and realize I'm in that or I'm having those feelings until I'm not having those feelings, right? Or that I'm being affected. Um, And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, I was a little out of my tree. Or I was, yeah, I did have that reaction because of COVID, because of, you know, whatever the life quake is, right? And I don't know, can you, like, I guess the other thing is, how do you get, not you, how do I get that um, awareness of, yeah, I'm in it or allowing myself. I didn't grow up in a family where we said things like, oh, you're probably feeling this. You're probably like, it was all kind of like, we didn't talk about any of that. So I don't think I was ever, I never was given that latitude or learned, learned to give myself the latitude of you feel really sad right now. You have to read Mark Brackett's Permission to Feel. Oh. That's his book. Okay. That was not language in my house. I don't know if it was in mine either, but I would say that being an exaggeration of ourselves is, you know, it's it's like a little bit of that sad thing about can we change or not, you know, yeah. because I always wonder, like, if we spend our years of like, I don't know, maybe 20 to 70 trying to <laughs> iron out like the the exaggeration of us and temper it a little bit. But then you get to a certain age, like we I can see with aging with an aging mom that she's exactly who she was, just on steroids. So mm-hmm. all the all the effort of restraint is, disappears. <laughs> so, she, you know, I mean, truthfully, is it worth it? 20, 20 to 70. I guess like, you know, 50 years is a long time. <laughs> that might be worth it. Well, I think it would, you know where it would be worth it is where I could, that I don't have to rely on others to tell me to take a step back. Like, right? That I could notice it in myself and be like, oh, I should put this down for a minute. Like that check in ourselves. I mean, I appreciate it. I'm glad that I have you and other friends to say, you know, this might look different in a day or this. And I'm like, I wonder what she means by that. <laughs> Every time? Every, Every time. time. <laughs> right. That's so embarrassing. <laughs> like what What would be those triggers that you would say? Or is it just not a giving? Is it back to the original word in early COVID is giving grace? Would you like to lie down on the couch for a second and we can talk? <laughs> the roofers, I think the roofers went home. Yes. Yeah, I think the roofers have stopped. <laughs> anyway, there's, I mean, I think there are lots of times in life where we are whammed with something that we didn't anticipate, especially if you're a person who likes to be in control, like you plot out your life and then yeah. something sideswipes you, which Bruce calls life quakes. And then the real challenge is not whether it will happen because it happens to all of us, but how do we respond to it? So I think we're seeing it right now in COVID. I definitely felt it when I broke my ankle. You're talking about the aftermath of someone saying like, 
you can see it later. So those are those are all the things he's talking about in his book about how, and other people have talked about it for years in terms of resilience. So something happens, and are you somebody who like really deeply wallows in it, or are you somebody who needs like two days to say you're right and and like this woman do with it? And and in this instance of COVID, it's not two days, obviously, but how we respond to this. And I think someone asked the question, how do you want to look back on this time and be remembered for how you behave during COVID? And it's such a hard question, really hard question. Like, I, you know, did I show enough grace? Probably not. Yeah, it's a really weird time. I have been journaling, which is a different topic. Okay, so I want to talk about that for a second because I want to journal, but I'm so afraid that like the people I journal about that are making up my life story will not like it when they read it when I'm gone. I know. I was thinking this is all they're going to have, right? Yeah. But I do. Yeah. I hope it's a pretty. It, it's funny. A lot of when I write about the kids, it is very is more reporting. Like wherever I'm traveling, when I journal, I always start off with the state of the Silverman family, like where everybody is, what they're doing. So it's more like a point in time of reflection of like, oh, this one's in grad school or this one's you know a senior or whatever. So it's more getting that a marking. Nowhere in your journal are you like, he was such an asshole today. Yeah. <laughs> no, Sue, I don't have those journals anywhere. Mm-mm. I don't have a secret key to where those are kept. Uh-uh. Nope. Mm-mm. Not me. <laughs> okay, so up next is our conversation with Bruce. We can't wait for you to join us. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby. We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be. But we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education. That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children. On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself. Whether you're a new parent, or have been in the game for a while. We invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together. Our guest today is Bruce Feiler. Bruce is a popular writer, speaker, and thinker on the topic of the ever-evolving American family. In three books, two TED Talks, and more than 100 New York Times columns, Bruce has written about the impact of technology, family storytelling, cutting-edge conflict resolution, and changing work patterns on the American home. His most recent book is called Life is in the Transitions and acts as a guide to mastering transitions at any age. Bruce, you start your book with your own story. You experienced three huge disruptions in your life, a cancer diagnosis, personal financial crisis, and your father's attempt to take his own life. Can you tell us how these experiences led you down the path of what you call the Life Story Project, which led you to write this book? 
First of all, it's great to be with you guys again. Thank you for having me. There was a moment in this process that was sort of weird and magical in its own way, which is one day I pulled a book off the shelf and the whole shelf opened up and there turned out to be another room. You know, that kind of thing that you see in adolescent fantasy novels. Apparently, Dan Brown has one of those in his actual castle in France. Anyway, the room that I showed up in kind of brought me in touch with an idea that I had never thought about, that it turns out lots of people had never thought about. And that idea is that our lives have certain shapes, kind of paradigmatic shapes, if you will. And like, we all grew up in a time when we were told that life was going to be linear, okay? So in the ancient world, they thought life was cyclical, like to every season, turn, turn, turn. You know, then we were told that life is linear. You're going to have a series of steps and phases and stages. And that turned out to be kind of not exactly true. And so the way I think of my life now is I had a linear life. I grew up in Georgia. I left there and I went to college. I moved to Japan. I started writing letters home. And when I got back home, everyone said, I love your letters. And I was like, great, have we met? And I thought, well, I should write a book about this. So in my 20s, I wrote books about Japan and England and I spent a year as a circus clown. That's a really good one. I want to hear more about that on another, the next book you write. Yeah, I sort of juggled my way through high school, put myself through high school, uh, learning to juggle. And then I joined a circus in my 20s. And then in my 30s, I went back and forth, as you know, to the Middle East, writing books about religion and spirituality, walking the Bible. I made a bunch of TV shows. I got married. I had children. This was a linear arrow of progress. Like, this is the way life was supposed to be. But then in my 40s, I just got walloped by life. I got diagnosed with cancer, as you said, as a new dad. That was the year of the recession, and I almost went bankrupt. And then my dad, who has Parkinson, tried to take his own life six times in 12 weeks. And we were struggling with all sorts of family issues at that time. But I'm the story guy. So one Monday morning, I said, I'm going to send my dad a question. And that question was, tell me about the toys you played with as a kid. And he answered that question. And I sent another one, tell me about the house you grew up. And this went on for weeks. Tell me about uh, how'd you join the Navy? How'd you become an Eagle Scout? How'd you meet mom? And this man who had never written anything longer than a memo backed into writing an autobiography. And it was so powerful. Like it really brought him back to life. And I would tell the story, like I'm telling the story now to the two of you. And everybody had a similar story. Like my wife had a headache and went into the hospital and died, or my boss is a crook, or my daughter has an anxiety disorder. Everybody was saying the same thing, like the life I'm living is not the life I expected. And it came back to this idea of shape, like their lives were taking a different shape. And I said to my wife, like, no one knows how to tell their story anymore. And so that led me to create what I've come to call the Life Story Project, and I crisscrossed the country collecting hundreds of stories of Americans and of all ages and all walks of life, all 50 states. People lost homes, lost limbs, changed careers, changed religions, got sober, got out of bad marriages. And then I had this huge trove, 6,000 pages of transcripts, and then I spent a year coding them, combing through them, trying to find themes and takeaways that could help all of us in times of change. All right, so Bruce, let's go back to this idea of discovering that life is not linear, right? It's filled with all these disruptions to this path that we that we all think that we are on, and you call them life quakes. And thinking about that in the context of raising teens, how do we help our kids through this? Because these life quakes are inevitable, but how we transition and how we deal with them is voluntary. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so let me 
pick that important question apart. Let me first of all kind of talk about what I found, and then let me talk about this issue of how, how we talk to our to our teenagers about it. I'm speaking as the as the father of of identical girls who are 15 and right in the middle of all this. So first of all, the kind of the big idea that emerged from all of these conversations, and it's frankly not the idea that I went looking for, but the big idea is that the linear life is dead. So the idea that we're going to have one job, one home, one one source of happiness, one spirituality, one sexuality from adolescence to assisted living, like that idea is deader than it's ever been. It's been replaced by what I call the nonlinear life, and the nonlinear life has many more twists and turns. So my data show that we have one disruptor, as I call it. We go through these disruptors, three dozen in our lives, one every 12 to 18 months. That's more often than many people see a dentist. And most of these we get through. Like we might have an accident, we might, and by the way, these are positive and negative. Having a child is a disruptor. Becoming an empty nester is a disruptor. Uh, But so is getting a diagnosis or losing your job. But most of these we get through with relative ease. We're pretty good at at adaptability. But one in 10 of those becomes what I call a life quake, which is this massive change that is higher on the Richter scale of consequences and has aftershocks that last for years. But as you were saying that these life quakes can be positive, like moving or starting a new venture or getting sober after a long time, or they can be involuntary. They're about 50-50. Involuntary is a natural disaster. Your spouse cheats on you. You lose your job. But the life transition that comes out of it must be voluntary. Like you have to lean in. And that's what's interesting about this moment we're in now, right? So the pandemic is the first, in the language of, of my book, is the first collective involuntary life quake in a century, that we're all going through this at the same time. But that's deceiving because the transition that Susan might go through is different from the transition that you might go through is different than the transition that I might go through. Again, the big idea, linear life is dead. The nonlinear life involves many more transitions. These transitions are a skill that we can and must master. And the second half of my book unveils the first new model for how to navigate life transitions in 50 years. So that's the context. Now let's talk about our kids. So I think that the first thing that we need to do is not to prepare our children for a linear life. So not to prepare them for the idea that that every problem can be solved with technology or modern medicine, right? This idea that they're going to move on and get, get what their dreams come, you know, what their dreams want, and they're going to have the occasional crisis on a birthday that ends in zero. This is a completely misleading thing. And this is an artificial construct because in the ancient world, they said life was cyclical because they did not have linear time. In the Middle Ages, they said, stair- they said life was a staircase up to middle age. You peak and then you go down. We were told the opposite that, you know, in the 20th century, that middle age was the bottom, the idea of a midlife crisis. So the point I'm making is that all of these are artificial constructs. And if we tell our children that life is oscillating, as you know, I think, I don't know if this is how we met, Susan, but in Secrets of Happy Families, I encountered this research from two researchers at Emory who found that children who knew more about their family history, it was a number one predictor of a child's emotional well-being. And when I asked them why, they said that there are three types of family narratives. There's an ascending narrative. We come from nothing. We work hard. We have a lot. That's your linear life. (laughs) Then there's a descending narrative. We had a lot of success. There was a war, a pandemic, or misfortune of some kind, and we lost it all. Or there's an oscillating narrative. And the children who understand that life is oscillating 
are better able to navigate their ups and downs. So I think step number one is to talk to kids that life follows an oscillating path and that they get to pick the own shape of their life. That's point number one. But I think then the next and maybe even more important is to talk about, say, the moment that we're in now where people have been dislocated, interrupted by the pandemic as an opportunity to develop skills that will carry them through their lives. You know, my data show that we go through three to five life quakes in a life, they take four or five years. That's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives we're going to spend in transition. So transitions are a life, kind of a lifelong sport that no one's teaching us how to play. So the advantage now is everybody's being forced to play this. So if we talk about this time as the building block of skills, that is a very valuable, uh, a very valuable lesson. Okay, so we're going to get to those tools in a little bit because you have seven tools that can help us help our kids learn how to adjust to this. But first, I want to point out how the timing of your book is, um, <laughs> I don't know, you, you didn't start the book at the beginning of the pandemic. What year did you start writing the book? Well, I, this project began and basically in two thir- 2013. And then it comes out in the middle of a pandemic. We, so I just want to point out the irony of that and how you are there to be a resource for us at this moment. But I want to ask you a question it's a little one, but I, I just think it's so interesting. You talk about the lesson of the wolf in the fairy tale. So can you just explain what that is? So on the first point, I feel like I can spend the rest of my life trying to understand this, that I have been working on this project for half a decade. I've been wandering around my house kind of muttering to myself like a madman, like, we should be talking about transitions. Like, transitions are really important. Like, why has there not been a major book on life transitions in 40 years? Like, this is the skill that we all need to survive right now. And lo and behold, my book comes out in the middle of a pandemic when this is the most urgent life skill that we all need. And I no longer have to persuade people that they're interested in life transitions. And so kind of this book is landing, kind of making a visceral connection to people. But the wolf in the fairy tale allows me to answer, go back to the question that that Steph brought up, which is about meaning, right? So what is a, what is a life quake? A life quake is a meaning vacuum where the, it kind of sucks all the traditional ways that we make meaning in our lives. It kind of obliterates them and so that they disappear. And a life transition is the process it's like a meaning factory. It's the process of, of, of rebuilding and reestablishing this, the building blocks of meaning. As you know, in my book, I have kind of these three building blocks of meaning. I call them the ABCs of meaning. The A is agency. That's what we do, things we can control. We make kind of our work lives for many of us. B is belonging, our relationships, neighbors, friends, colleagues, family. And the C is a cause, a higher calling. And each of us has each of these three in us, and we kind of, we have the way we balance them. And then suddenly, in a pandemic, it's been blown up. Like, you know, wait a minute, now we, maybe we've lost a job, or we have to step back from our job to spend more time with our children, right? Or maybe we're a parent and we become an empty nester and we need, we, we've been giving so much and now we want to do something for ourselves, right? Or maybe we, we're a cause or we were a teacher or a doctor or, you know, we work in religion or nonprofits and we burn out and we want to, you know, do something, do something different. So what happens in these pandemics is it's a kind of way to revisit the sources of our meaning. And that is fundamentally an act of storytelling, okay? So, you know, we're so shaped by the earliest stories that we hear and the fairy tale is kind of the classic story that we hear and we think that there's a hero 
and there is a happy ending. But the truth is that's not what makes it a fairy tale. What makes it a fairy tale is when the wolf shows up, okay? And that is the big disruption. And the hero has to figure out how to get through or over or under or around or just plow past that wolf in some way. That what the wolf is, is the breach in the normal. And there's no reason to tell a story unless there's a breach in the normal. And then it's the act of the story to restore normalcy to this breached, difficult situation. So sometimes the wolf is a wolf. Sometimes it's an ogre. Sometimes it's a troll. Sometimes it's a dragon. But sometimes it's a tornado or it's a downsizing or it's a death or it's a pandemic. And so what the wolf is, is the wolf in our fairy tale that interrupts the flow And we want to avoid it. And we want to protect our children from it. But the truth is, you can't banish the wolf. And that's okay, because if you banish the wolf, you banish the hero. And if there's one thing I learned is we all have to be the hero of our own story. I want to say that, like, save a lifetime of therapy and just listen to Bruce Feiler and read his book. Because (laughs) look, look, look for the wolf and figure out how to restore yourself. Yeah, I love that. I mean, just listen, I'm just trying to integrate it as as you were talking about it. And it's not that, it's not if the wolf or if the troll or if the, it's when. And so, you know, thinking about it in those terms of how we can prepare kids to respond to these transitions, which is a great segue right into your seven tools for transition. So can you talk about those? The first one is accept it and identify your emotions. So what I want to say about transitions, and again, we're talking to kids. Like, so when, when these periods hit us, people tend to react one of two ways, right? Some people make 217 item to-do lists. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing, Susan, that's you, and I see you raising your hand. Like, I'm going to get, I'm going to be the superhero, and I'm going to get through this, and I'm going to, and we're going to nail it, and it'll take us, I don't know, maybe a long weekend, and we're going to get, and we're going to be prepared, okay? Other people, and we'll see, I don't know if this is you, Steph, but other people feel stuck, and alone, and they're in a fetal position on their bed, and like, whoa, why is this happening to me? And this is actually one of my teens was this. Actually, both of my teens are identical girls, and kind of each of them responded somewhat differently, even though they have the same DNA, so that'll tell you something. That's fascinating. Uh, one of mine was like, oh, this is so awful, and I had all these things I was going to do this year. And my other one was like, okay, well, we're going to be perfect, right? And we're going to nail it. <laughs> and the, this is the, their different kind of reactions to this. I'm neither but, of those, Bruce. I just start vacuuming, and I don't know what okay. that has to do with anything. <laughs> Okay, so that's your <laughs> your way of coping. And I think what's gonna this is gonna resonate because what I found is that transitions involve three phases. There's the long goodbye, where we have to kind of accept and say goodbye to the life that's not coming back. There's the messy middle where you shed certain habits and begin new ones. And then there's the new beginning where you unveil your new self. And it turns out that each of us has good. At one of them, our transition superpower, as I call it, and bad at another. And one of the things that I try to help people do is identify which one you're good at. Let's start there. You don't have to do them in order, which is what we were long told. You can do them in whatever order. So Susan, if you're a if you're a 21, you know, 217 item to-do list maker, you're probably good at the messy middle. You're good, you know, you had a bunch of kids and probably a complicated house. And so you're good at organizing and getting through the messy middle. But if I had to guess, you may be less good at the long goodbye, where you sit and confront the emotions and, you know, kind of mark the past that's not coming coming back. And so this is... <laughs> 
she says, weeping into the into the into the microphone. To your question, these tools, I had seven tools, most of them are largely associated with one of the phases, right? So the long goodbye is number one, accept it. I looked 225 people in the eye and I said, what's the biggest emotion you struggled with during your transition? Number one answer, fear. How am I going to get through this? How am I going to survive without money? What am I going to do with a child with special needs? Like, how am I going to get through this illness? Number two answer, sadness. I like that old life. I miss it. I want to go back. I like seeing my friends if you're a teenager, right? I like going to school. I like having sports practice or ballet. Number three, shame, interestingly enough, right? I'm ashamed to have a child with an addiction, okay? I'm ashamed that I lost my job and don't have money to pay the bills. I'm ashamed of what I did when I was drinking. And so then, so the first step is to just accept and discuss openly that this is an emotional experience. And I think that's incredibly valuable as parents is to get our kids to articulate the feelings that they are definitely feeling during this time. And then also in this long goodbye, how do you get through this? Some people write their feelings down. Some people do what I do, which is kind of plow through, right? Kind of, you know, shut up and go back to work is my, you know, kind of a motto of mine. But 80% of the people use rituals of some kind. They have memorial services, they have ceremonies, they go to sweat lodges, they jump out of airplanes, they get tattoos. Some way to say, we're not going back, right? That that's past and we're going to be ready for the messy middle and the next steps to come. So that's marking it, right? Ritualizing yes. whatever this is. What's this? Ne- the, tell us about the next one. Shed it. Giving up old mindsets. You've said goodbye to the past. You now have finally acknowledged that. We're, and think about, by the way, just think about this in the context of the pandemic. I think the first few months we thought we'll stay inside, you know, we'll, we'll mitigate, we'll wear masks and we'll go back. Well, now, six months into, we all know that we're not going back. And so then what are you going to do when you realize you're in for some long period as we are now where, we, where the, the future is unclear? This is the messy middle. <laughs> and, it, and look what we're all struggling with. It's, in fact, very messy. Two things in this process. The first, as you say, is shed it. Identify some habit <laughs> that's not coming back. So you have to shed the idea that we're going to school every day, right? Or shed the idea that uh, everybody has their own workspace <laughs> in the house and realize that this is a fluid thing. But sometimes people shed things that they don't actually like. So maybe you can shed some habit around your house of people yelling or of non-communicating or of struggling over homework or what, or maybe you're going to shed getting dressed and putting your coats and slickers on and getting out the door because you no longer have to get out the door. So there's going to be some process of shedding old habits and old ways, which then leads you to this next phase, which is astonishing acts of creativity where people sing, they dance. They, I talked to a woman who went through a, lost her job at Fox News and went through a depression. She played ukulele. I talked to a woman who had college chemistry professor who got stomach cancer, uh, left her husband who didn't want to take care of her, ultimately had to step down from her job. She had a childhood dream of being a ballerina. She started taking adult ballet. I talked to a woman in LA, Lisa Ray Rosenberg, who had an awful year. She had bone marrow transplant for her brother, had a falling out with her mother, went on 52 52 first dates, actually made a spreadsheet of everything she wore in the first date because she only went on seven second dates and she didn't want to wear the same thing on the second date that she'd worn on the first dates. She was like, I got to get past this year. What's my biggest fear? Heights. She jumped out of an airplane. So these are incredible acts of 
boldness and creativity and daring that allow people to begin to create this new life. And that's another vibrant part of a, of a life transition. Well, you talk about your next one it has to do with sharing it. You call it you're seeking wisdom from others and followed by launching, launching and unveiling your new self. Can you talk about this specifically in the context of teens and how we would help them do this? So most of these tools are largely associated with one of the the three phases, the long goodbye, the messy middle, the new beginning. But one of them floats. It can happen only once or it can happen in every one. And that's sharing it, like going through it with somebody else. One of the most acute feelings of a life transition is you feel isolated, lonely, disconnected, separated from your routines. And that's a very dangerous thing. It's especially dangerous for teens, as we know, who are very social. And, and we know teens in there between 12 and 15, children spend half as much time with their parents and twice as much time with their peers. And what we know in the pandemic is that we are inverting that. <laughs> and that's challenging because their job at this moment is to begin to separate and individuate from their parents and begin to rely more on their peers and on uh, adult figures who are not their parents. So we are disrupting the normal. And so it's incredibly important to make sure, even in this isolated period, that children, uh, teenagers in particular, have someone that they can go through this experience with our pediatrician said something to our children when they first became teens, which I appreciated was, do you have somebody you can tell your problems to? Anybody. Can be a parent, can be a sibling, can be an aunt and uncle, a coach, a, you know, a religious leader or a friend, somebody. And I think that that's a very powerful watchword. But then that leads to where you went next, which is this larger process of rewriting your story and beginning to tell it to other people. And I've spent years, years now, learning about the power of storytelling and the power of understanding the, your own story. Like life is the story that you tell yourself. This is what happened with my dad so many years ago. It turns out there's a whole field of narrative gerontology. There's a whole field of narrative medicine of talking about your illness. But we know that we're kind of born with some of these tools but that it really is in adolescence. It's really in the teen years that we begin to tell our own story and that our teenagers explore, do I want to be like my parents or do I want to not be like my parents, right? Do I want to be someone who does my homework or do I want to be a rebel? Do I want to experiment with sexuality, drinking, drugs, these kinds of things, or do I want to be somebody who follows the rules? All of that is at its core a narrative process, a process of, of adding new chapters to your life, of trying it this way and trying it that way. And that's a very normal process that sometimes is hard for parents to accept because they think that once they, that they try something, that's who they're going to be. And the parents are kind of continuing the story. But you know, part of this is a message to parents is that life is nonlinear and choices that your teen is making now may not be choices and are almost your teen's going to make a month from now and surely isn't going to be a choice that your teen makes a year from now and is absolutely not going to be a choice that your teen is making five years from now. That's not what it is. They're adding a new chapter. They're experimenting. They're trying to figure out how they want to tell their story. They're going to be the hero. And is this the hero who's a rule follower, a rule breaker, a boundary breaker, a record setter, someone who's going to accept normalcy. That is fundamentally a narrative process. And if you help your teen recognize it as such, you will help give your teen the tools to write their way through whatever disruption or transition they're going to face in the future. I love that because as parents, we are so quick to write the story. 
Exactly. So quick. And that, by the way, is the way our brains work. Like when you start telling a story, my brain finishes it. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And that's what's happening. Your teen is saying, I'm going to go there. And you're thinking, oh my God, this is going to lead to this. And it's going to lead to that. And it's going to lead to this. And do you know what's going to happen in 17 years? (laughs) Right. But that is our, we are haunted by the ghost of linearity. It's so true. It's so, that I remember is our, our kid, problem, yeah, not theirs. Yeah, it's so true. I remember, and Sue and I have told these stories many times, like, you know, I could go from a kid breaking a crown, breaking a crayon to now he's got a life sentence. Yes. <laughs> really? There's no connection. But we want to write that. We want to lock into something because it's uh, maybe less scary when you think you know the story or you can plan for it, right? Okay, now I know the story. Now I can plan. It's challenging to accept the fact First of all, that they get to write the story of their lives. <laughs> right. You know, I feel like saying this thing out, but there's this idea I have about parenting that that in all these years, and of you mentioned all the years I've been doing this, Sue at the uh, Susan at the outset, our children are born entirely dependent on us. Our job is to make them entirely independent of us. Like our job is to put ourselves out of a job, and this is very very hard for us to accept. I have a friend who has an 18-month-old toddler right now, and she just posted the story that when my friend's wife, my friend is also a woman, and when her wife brought their son home, the one of the moms started crying, and the other mom said, well, why are you crying? And she said, because he's going to grow up and leave us someday. <laughs> like, the, the kid's just home from the hospital, and now this kid happens to be on a scooter for the first time and scooting away from them, you know, on the street. And I thought... That's the job. That's not the job that we think it is, but our job is to give them the ability to be the hero of their own story. Bruce, I think that might be your next book because the world Mm. is divided in terms of who cries when they bring their baby home because they're going to leave and who revels in that moment. And there's so many things that line up with how you live through your life knowing, like my my last kid, I cried every single day because it was the last time I would experience that as a mother. And by the way, that then, I'm not to tell you this, but then that is replicated, that is bookended when they leave home. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's the people who celebrate <laughs> and then the people who cry. Yeah, although I can turn, I can turn the crying into celebrating faster than I thought. Um, <laughs> but, okay, so here's our last question. Our last question is, what do you find as a parent is the biggest myth about teenagers? What do I find as a parent is the biggest myth about teenagers, that they don't want you to parent them? It's a good one. You know, I think that I'm the type of parent, if you've learned anything about me in these many years, we've all known one another. I'm the type of parent who has the 217 item to-do list, right? (laughs) I read a story (laughs) in a book years ago about a mom and and a teenage son driving down the street, listening to the radio. And on the radio, there is some sort of, I don't know if it was a sex act or some kind of wrinkle of grown-up relationships that is mentioned in this song. And the kid says to the, the son says to the mom, what is that? So if that ever happened to me, I would be the parent who would say, as it happens, I have an entire speech about this and I've researched it and I've talked to all the experts and these are the five things you need to know about this. So let's jerk the car over to the side of the road and I'm now going to read you this speech that I've been waiting for five years for you to ask me, you know, about sexuality and independence and finding your voice and your way in the world or whatever or whatever it was. And the person in this story 
So that's really interesting. Let me turn up, let me turn up the radio because I, I like the song. I want to hear the rest of it and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. And that is so much better approach. I mean, one of the things that I learned about writing about teens over the years is that these teens are overwhelmed by, by face-to-face contact because they spend so much time looking in screens that looking like what I want to do, like looking somebody in the eye and saying, look back at me. And, you know, my love language is quality time. Like I want, I want that intensity is often too intense for these kids that you have to find occasions when you're driving in a car, you're, you're unloading the dishwasher if you can get them to unload the dishwasher or folding the laundry or taking a walk. When you're not looking at them, that you can still impart wisdom to them. Because one thing that I am struck with repeatedly as a, as a parent of teens they think they know it all. They think that they've seen it on the internet or watched it on TikTok or, 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 or observed it in pop culture. But the truth is they've only seen a snippet here or there. In Secrets of Happy Families, I tell this story about a, a mom of teenage girls. And then the girl comes home one day and said, we had oral sex at school today. And the mother's like, What? She said, yeah, well, we had, a, we had oral. We, we talked about sex in health education today. And the mother was like, okay, I, I get that. Let me tell you what oral sex is. That's when this person does that to that person and the daughter was humiliated. So the point is, our kids actually want to think that they know everything and that they don't need us, but they need us. And the job and the responsibility and the burden is on us to find creative ways to impart that information. Not always the direct, over-the-head, kind of blunt force that might have worked when they were younger. All right, Bruce, this was amazing to be with you. And I want everyone to know who's listening, as much as you heard about Bruce Bruce's book, Life is in the Transitions, there's so much more in the book to get out of it. So make sure you go and buy it and read it. It's really transformative. It will be your own life quake just reading the book. So Bruce, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you, guys. It's great to be with you. And thank you for all you do for parents of teens everywhere. We can get through this, everybody. There is knowledge out there, and we can get through it together. Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. in Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.